This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley in for Rick Zampern for one more day. You're going to be glad you're here because we're going to be talking about inflation, how this compares to what we faced in the 1970s, for those who remember. Monkeypox is among us. Should you be panicking about monkeypox? We're going to explain what monkeypox is and whether you should worry. Huawei, no longer allowed in Canada. Good decision? Probably. Late decision? Well, we'll see. We have too few nurses in this province. How did we get to this point? We'll find out about that. There is a woman we're going to talk to who is doing an unbelievable charity event on the weekend. You'll want to hear about that. And the Hamilton Bulldogs open the third round of their playoffs on Friday night. We will talk to Steve Steos, general manager and president of the team, about where they go from here. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There is an interesting story. The reason we're having Marvin on, there's an interesting um, comparison that some people are making these days, which is that we all know that inflation is very high. We had Sylvain Charlebois on here yesterday talking about food inflation hitting almost 10% in April. Gas prices going through the roof. Everything is more expensive. And a lot of people now are pointing to the 1970s and saying, this kind of looks kind of familiar. Does it, Marvin? For those who maybe, you know, 1970s or a few years ago now, is what we're going through right now actually similar to what happened then? Well, well, let's take you to the 1970s. Uh, there we had high inflation. In fact, inflation hit into the double digits. We had 10%, 12% inflation. But it was also accompanied with uh, relatively high unemployment. And so the reason why this time it's a little different is we're not seeing this high inflation, at least so far, we're not seeing this high inflation causing people to lose jobs and being out of work. Uh, also, we had high inflation, we had high unemployment, but we had high interest rates. And for those old enough to remember in 1981-82, you actually saw the prime interest rate in Canada hit nearly 20%. And by the time you add what the banks did, you would actually see people getting one-year mortgages in the 20% range. Instead, our interest rates are quite low. So I don't think it's exactly the same, but the concern is if we don't wrestle inflation to the ground soon, then will it become persistent? And that's that's the real concern. Now, we've talked about this several times, Scott, and when this began in July of last year, across 3% in July of last year, that's when it starts to get worrisome. I really did believe it was just something for the second half of 2021, and that in early 2022, we would come back down to something more normal. Uh, that was also because that's when the Bank of Canada would start raising interest rates a little bit and everything would get back to normal. That hasn't happened because we've added in this thing called the war in Ukraine. And although you and I don't live it, it's on another continent, it's half a world away, it has really perturbed the economic situation so that rather than coming down, it's actually gotten worse. 6.8% was announced Wednesday. It was 6.7% in the previous month, the month of March. I still believe in my heart of hearts that it's going to come down somewhat in the second half of the year, but we're only a third of the way through. We've still got Mm. May, we've still got June before we really turn a corner on this. So here's a couple of things. I do believe, again, that on June 1st, the Bank of Canada is going to raise interest rates again, probably another half a percent, uh, which we can absorb. Uh, People can absorb this. This is still well below the average interest rate in Canada over the last hundred years but they are going to put the brakes on. And probably now in hindsight, they should have acted sooner 
they're now playing catch up. Some of the things, and you just mentioned, you know, the war, uh, where everyone knows we're coming out of COVID, supply chain issues. We, we know, I think, the reasons why inflation is an issue right now. What was the reason why it was an issue back in the 70s? Um, well, it was that com- magical combination of uh, high unemployment. Uh, so people were out of work. We had, uh, for whatever reason, high interest rates, and there were other things going on in the world that were driving that. And then that led to high inflation. And we put it all together. That caused the government at the time, and again, hardly anyone alive even remembers this. It was such a dark day. We actually had our federal government employ a wage and price controls, meaning they tried to bring inflation down, not through this monetary policy of, of interest rates, but instead they said, we're just going to mandate that uh, inflation shouldn't be more than this. And if you want to raise a price more than this, you've got to apply to the government. We've got to approve that. And they're hoping was that by controlling price increases through legislation, they could bring uh, inflation to the ground. That didn't really begin to take effect until the 1980s. So we had a period in the 70s where normal inflation seemed to be six, seven, eight percent a year. And it was just a, a crazy time that nobody wants to revisit. There was a, one of the common denominators, and probably not surprisingly, because it's so important to our lives, but one of the common denominators now, gas prices are, everyone's talking about them, they are just like nothing we've ever seen before. Back in the 70s, it wasn't necessarily the prices of gas, it was the shortages of gas with the OPEC yes. shortage and everything else. But it, it, is gas one of those common denominators that drives part of this? Yeah, because it's so ubiquitous. So I'll say fuel in general. Uh, sure. We've seen food prices up. Well, some of it is the basic cost of harvesting grain or, or raising a cow to be slaughtered, but the distribution cost, and so much of what we're getting today is shipped around the world. So with high fuel prices, then the cost of bringing uh, oranges into the country or lettuce into the country or, or other goods from other parts of the world, that's gone up. If you're trying to buy uh, clothing, if you're trying to buy furniture, we don't make all of that stuff here in Canada. And so the, the cost of transportation has taken it up. Just recently, I was on a bit of a vacation. Uh, so uh, fuel prices affect the airline industry and their ticket prices are up. All of those things are combining at the moment. Now, the good news is it can go the opposite direction. And if we can break the situation in the Ukraine and if we can break the fever in oil prices and maybe see them get back down to $60 a barrel or $80 a barrel even, we should see uh, the price of fuel go down, and that would then have the same positive effect on inflation, meaning that it would come down as well. But where it should have come down, the problem in Ukraine and a problem in Russia, that's just persisting all the way through. And I just don't know when it's going to end, because even if peace is declared in the Ukraine, it's not like the world is instantly going to go back to the way it was in January Mm. of this year. I think we're actually beginning to see a new iron curtain falling around Russia, and I'm not quite sure what all the economic consequences of that is going to be. We don't have long, but back in the 70s, what was it that brought them out of their reset, out of their uh, their situation, out of the inflation? What, what changed that? Yeah, well, actually, it was a terrible uh, depression or recession. We, we don't like to use that D word, so we use the R word instead, recession, in the early, early 1980s, so 81, 82, this is when inflation hit 20%, uh, or it's not inflation, this is when interest rates hit 20%. Uh, inflation uh, was around 12%, and then it broke. 
And uh, I would say, again, it was a combination of the world leaders coming together and doing something to bring this down. Oil also had been part of it. We actually had lineups. We were worried about fuel yes. shortages. We don't have that this time around. But there was uh, some ways of extending that. And they just came together to bring it to a head. And then it broke. And by the middle of the middle, late 1980s, uh, inflation, those sorts of things were starting to come down quite dramatically. And this is why we don't want to go back there. So uh, I expect you're going to see both federal, uh, somewhat on the provincial level, but certainly the Bank of Canada take some extraordinary steps over the next few months to wrestle this to the ground. So we don't need to take deeper steps to deal with inflation. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this this morning. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Just as we are getting out of COVID, just as we're beginning to see the clouds break and the sunlight come through again and a little bit of normal return to our lives, and we start to think, hey, we don't have to talk about viruses for a while. We can have a break. A new one comes along. Monkeypox. Yes, monkeypox, which... I don't know who came up with the name. Sounds like almost funny, not funny. What is monkeypox? I want to bring in Raywad Dianandan, Associate Professor of University of Ottawa and an epidemiologist. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Uh, so I think a lot of people are asking one very simple question. What the heck is monkeypox? <laughs> it's a virus. It's similar to smallpox, which sounds scary in, in little ways it is. Similar to uh, cowpox and camelpox, which are actual real things. And it's been with us for many decades, first identified in the 50s in Copenhagen, of all places, in a bunch of <laughs> lab monkeys. Yeah, hence the name monkeypox. It's actually mostly in some rodents in Africa. And up until recently, almost 100% of cases were in Central Africa. So uh, that's why it's making the news. Okay, now we, I know that there are always, and I mean, I don't mean to be too blanket here, but there are always different places around the world diseases that we never hear of, tropical diseases, other things that are unique and weird, and but they're mysteries to us because we never get them mentioned. We are now hearing about monkeypox because we've had some cases in this country. How did they get here? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not the first time, by the way, that monkeypox has made its way out of Africa. Back in 2003, there was an outbreak in the USA of about, I think, 70 people, none of whom died, by the way, caused entirely by importation of animals, prairie dogs in this case. So uh, most of the cases are caused by interactions with infected animals. They bite you, they, uh, you lick their pustules for whatever reason. But it looks like the... Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the current... I don't know who's licking animal pustules, but okay, <laughs> hey, if you do that, you deserve to get sick probably. But anyway, carry exactly. on. Um, uh, but in the, right now we have a bunch of outbreaks simultaneously in multiple countries suggesting that there is a route of transmission that's yet to be investigated, probably involving you know, human to human contact. Um, so to answer your question, why is it spreading? I don't know. Uh, it could be that there's an airborne component to it that's making its way onto airplanes and things like that. But that should not be terrifying to people because we control it the same way we control COVID. So in many ways, it's good news that it's happening now while COVID restrictions are in place and public health is primed to put in place things like distancing and mask wearing because that works well against monkeypox. And, and when you said off the top, it's kind of like smallpox. Well, there was a time when smallpox was considered like terrible. And probably if you get it now, it still is, but we are mostly inoculated against it. So we don't really worry about this. But anytime these days you say virus and you say human to human, and maybe you say airborne, uh, immediately after what we've been through, we understand why immediately we go, 
am I going to get this now? Uh, so am I going to get this? <laughs> Maybe, but probably not. And here's why. Um, first is that there is some immunity of smallpox still in the population. <clears throat> Most of us that are over a certain age were inoculated when we were kids, but the immunity for that has waned significantly. And the smallpox vaccine does work against monkeypox, about 85% deficient, but you need a booster to make it really work. So if it's been more than three years since you got smallpox vaccination, which is essentially everybody, then you probably are susceptible. Also, the way you get monkeypox is mostly through human-to-human -human contact, through the touching of open sores, the touching of shared uh, objects like bed sheets that were in contact with open sores, and it looks like sexual contact also. So that is a little harder than sharing the same air for a few uh, hours as you would in a uh, like an elevator with, uh, with COVID. Um, are you going to get it? Probably not because we're on top of this and also because the transmissibility of monkeypox is less than that of COVID. So we all know about the reproduction number, right? The average number of new cases produced by an existing case. That's how we measure how contagious a disease is. Measles is like 18. Uh, Omicron is maybe you know, 12 or 13 or something, which is pretty high. With monkeypox, it's probably two-ish, between one and two. And smallpox, it was three. So that still means it's you know uh, experiencing exponential growth when it can, but not nearly as contagious as Omicron. All right. So uh, uh, chances are you and I are not going to get it, but let's say we do. What 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 happens to you if you get monkeypox? Good news. Uh, we have treatments. First of all, that vaccine I talked about, the smallpox vaccine, which has been updated in 2019, I think, is also a treatment. If you get it within the first four days of exposure or infection, it can reduce the probability of getting symptoms. Also, there is uh, an antiviral that's been vetted for poxes of all kinds, and I probably can't pronounce how it's said. It's uh, tecoviramat. Um, the USA has millions of doses in their strategic reserve. Canada has some as well. So there are treatment options. And also, and also, in most cases, the infection will resolve itself with no intervention in about uh, a couple of weeks. But uh, a certain proportion of people do die of this. So there are two versions of monkeypox circulating, one serious, one not so. It's the not so serious one that seems to be the one making its way to North America and Europe, which is good. All right, and, and, and we do have the treatments, as you say, but just so we understand, if you didn't get the treatments, what would be the symptoms? What, what, how would you get sick? What would it look like if you were dealing with this? So it's got an incubation period of a couple of weeks or so. And um, after that, fever, followed by a rash, those classic smallpox kinds of rashes that we see in the history books all the time, these circular uh, scabby things mostly appearing in your face and extremities and they will go away in uh, two to three weeks by themselves usually it is uh okay so the good news is we're probably not gonna have to worry too much about it the bad news is having just worried about covid for two years we probably will <laughs> worry about it but um they're uh monkey pox there it is now you know uh raywat dianandan associate professor at university of ottawa really appreciate taking some time to explain it this morning thank you for this my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yesterday, we learned that Canada has banned Huawei from our 5G network. Uh, most people, almost everybody that I've seen so far and listened to has said, right move, good move, smart move. Critics, and maybe even some that aren't critics who are just observers, have said, yes, right move, but what took so long? I want to bring in Carmi Levy, who's a technology analyst and journalist who joins us now. Carmi, how are you this morning? 
Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Thrilled to have you. Um, this is the right decision, right? It is. I mean, you know, and, and of course, Canada, part of the Five Eyes uh, group, US, UK, Australia, New Zealand, all of those countries either uh, decided years ago to ban Huawei outright from uh, providing equipment for their 5G networks or uh, severely restrict their involvement. And so it was inevitable. We knew that Canada would have to follow suit. You don't stand out on your own on something like this. Uh, but it is disappointing that it took this long, that you know, two and three years after everyone else weighed in, Canada decides to say, okay, now we're gonna we're gonna make that call. And you know, the clock is ticking. Uh, you know, countries are moving very rapidly toward building out their 5G capabilities. Uh, this is the foundation of the digital economy going forward. And you know, if you if you delay uh, shifting into that 5G gear, uh, you risk having other companies or other countries be more competitive than you uh, in terms of their ability to access markets, to connect, to roll out uh, um, next generation, you know, high speed, high bandwidth services. Um, so, you know, we didn't do ourselves any favors by twiddling our thumbs, dragging our heels, and as usual, Canada lags. Mm. And, and as you say, that that is certainly part, I would say that is a big part of what the issue is here. The other issue, though, that some people have asked about is be, uh, Huawei was being able to work and function in Canada. So even when, so did we, did we do ourselves any disservice? Is there going to be remnants of Huawei here? Might we have given up secrets or technological stuff by allowing them to be here? Do, have we potentially exposed ourselves by allowing Huawei to stay as long as we did? It's entirely possible. I mean, if you, if you think about it, you know, this decision focuses exclusively on 5G technology, but the phone that we're using now, even though you know increasingly you can buy a 5G capable phone, for the most part, we're all still on 4G, and which is the last generation of wireless technology. And Bell uh, and Telus specifically, uh, they've spent uh, about a they've got about a billion dollars worth of equipment on their shared network across the country, and so we are already. If I make a phone call right now, then I'm, I'm it's probably already going through or flowing through Huawei equipment in some way, shape, or form. So to a certain degree, we are exposed, and and, uh, and Bell and TELUS have asked the federal government for compensation, or they are making noise about asking for compensation to remove that from their network so that they can use other suppliers. Uh, you know, the flip side of this is, is that um, this isn't just a cell phone issue. It's not, we're not just talking about 5G. Take a look at the phone that you're using, the laptop that you have, virtually all electronics that we use today, a good chunk of them were made in China. So this is probably a good opportunity for us to look at not just cell phone networks, but all technology and go, you know, is this a time for us to maybe start considering, um, you know, shifting that, that, that model where, you know, tech factories are based in China? Mm. Should they be shifted elsewhere? Apple is already in discussions with Vietnam about moving some of its China-based production there. And so I think there's a national discussion that has to happen. There's a global discussion that has to happen because truth of the matter is any uh, company that is based in China uh, has to adhere to the Chinese national intelligence law that compels them to hand over data, to hand over access if the Chinese government comes calling. That includes Huawei, it includes every company that makes the electronics that we use day to day. So it's a much bigger issue than just this one company. All right, so let's go to that for a second. I don't want to be paranoid. I don't want to sound conspiratorial. <laughs> I don't want to sound whatever else, but 
what was the fear about the worst case scenario in having a company here working here in our infrastructure that's seen as an arm of the Chinese government? Well, there's a huge amount of sensitivity to the traffic that flows across the equipment that this company would make. So think about cell phone towers, all of the equipment that is installed on them, as well as the network that connects them. Um, if your phone calls, if your data, all of your apps, everything that you do digitally, if that is somehow handled in some way, shape or form by Huawei equipment, then potentially that could be subject to Chinese government oversight if, in fact, they do uh, pull the trigger and, and, and ask for access to that information. And so, um, you know, the potential is there. Is it happening today? We don't have definitive proof of that. And I don't want to sound like Chicken Little. The sky is not falling. Uh, you know, we are not definitively being spied upon. But in a world where you have a choice between buying the Chinese-made equipment versus maybe uh, Nokia or Ericsson-made equipment, which comes from the other side of the world, not subject to government oversight, the choice is fairly clear. Go with the one where the potential for this kind of, uh, of government spying is reduced or eliminated. And so I think it's an easy decision. We're not, we're not at, at direct risk right now, but this certainly does mitigate our risk going forward. The other suggestion that was made by a few people was, look, if, if we're operating, or if we're subject, if we're needing this, you know, we get into a conflict, could they flick a switch and essentially shut it down and, and turn oh. off our system? That, that, the spying thing, you know, that's high level stuff that probably you and I, well, maybe you, but I, I can't, you know, really fathom in real terms all that that would entail. But mm -hmm. for our 5G system to suddenly not be operating, that we can all understand pretty clearly. Sure. And, you know, like th there's always that worry. But truth of the matter is these are highly distributed networks. And, and you, know, you know, frankly, you know, can Huawei from its home base in China flip a switch and, you know, magically make Canada's networks go dark because they sold us the equipment? Uh, we've never seen that in history. I certainly doubt that that would happen here. The repercussions okay. would be significant. Um, but, you know, but again, you know, it, it all comes down to risk mitigation. So, uh, no, I don't think our networks are going to go dark just because we still have some Huawei boxes on them. Uh, but going forward, if I were in charge of a company buying equipment, I'd certainly go with the one that, you know, kind of offers the least potential for problems going forward. And right now, the answer there is definitely not Huawei. Yes. And I want, by the way, to clarify, because I probably didn't ask the question. Well, I didn't mean now. I meant if we had, you know, kept going exactly. with Huawei and let them essentially run everything and be in control of everything. But I, your point, absolutely. So, what happens now, though, because the Chinese government has already expressed their dissatisfaction with this, are we going to, in your estimation, face some sort of retaliation in trade or something else for doing this? I think the potential is definitely there. We could see some trade sanctions, economic sanctions. Uh, they had warned us beforehand. China's ambassador was very clear. It would be a grave mistake if we decided in this way. Uh, Huawei itself was also sending some fairly ominous messages. So, yeah, I expect some kind of, uh, you know, tit-for-tat-like response, either, you know, sanctions or uh, we might see a rise in cyber attacks as well. You know, China is not happy with us. Uh, we certainly saw uh, an increase around the same time when the other Five Eyes countries made their announcements. And so uh, I would say, you know, prepare for the worst, batten down the hatches, because China is not happy. We've, you know, shot something across their bow. And I think we'd be naive to believe that they're mm. not going to shoot something back. Uh, but that's just the way this this process works. And I think, you know, certainly as our as we become more separated ideologically from China, 
but we're still connected economically. This kind of thing's going to come up fairly frequently. We're going to have to start making some hard decisions about which direction we want to go. And sometimes they're going to be a little bit messy. I guess no more sponsorship of Hockey Night in Canada by Huawei. I think, anyway. I, I think that's done. And yeah, you're not <laughs> buying a, a Huawei phone anytime soon, I'm sure. <laughs> Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ontario, it turns out, as we learn, is facing a major nursing shortage, which uh, doesn't take much to realize why this would be a problem, especially when every single one of the political parties running in this election here in the province has said it wants to improve our healthcare system. It wants to make sure that things work better. Um, that you know, the first step, maybe not even the first step, but one of the first steps along the way, one of the first foundational points is nurses. So how did we get here and how do we get out of this? I want to bring in Morgan Hoffarth, who is the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Thanks for doing this. Glad to have you along. Thanks for having me back. So how did we get here? So Ontario has lagged behind the rest of the country in the number of nurses per capita. So when we look at other provinces, Ontario started the pandemic 22,000 RNs uh, below per capita below what the country's average is. So we it's been a long time coming, uh, this nursing shortage and the shortage of nursing positions that have been available in Ontario. Uh, we've just kind of continually had cuts to our healthcare system. Nurses are the largest group of healthcare providers and are often where cuts happen. And uh, it's left us in a really, really difficult position where we are significantly understaffed. And yeah, and I think you, you make a, a, an important point here, and that is, um, you know, there's political blame to go around all over the place. When you hear any of the politicians in this campaign simply pointing fingers entirely at the other side, um, what's that old line about every time you point a finger, there's three pointing back at you? Uh, I mean, there's lots of blame to go around for this. Yeah, it, uh, it definitely has not only been our current government that has uh, played a role in getting to the position that we're in, but it's been, it's been more than four years in the making to get to this point. Where is the greatest shortage? And I mean, where, not only where geographically, but what area of nursing, if there is that, where is the greatest shortage? Uh, it's, so there's shortages everywhere. We see significant shortages um, in some of our urban areas and in their intensive care units and their emergency departments. The shortages there, um, those are also the areas where there are the, the most nurses per patient because that's where people are the most acutely unwell. Um, so we've, we've seen significant shortages in the, in the intensive care unit and in emergency departments, but we also see really significant shortages in the community and in long-term care homes. Um, it's been really difficult across all sectors. So it's not not just hospital, just long-term care, or just community. It's kind of across the board. But the areas that have that have particular uh, kind of specialty skills that take a long time to develop, those areas have uh, have been particularly hard hit. And you know what? It's it's. It's great to have lots of nurses. It's even better to have lots of great nurses. Uh, and nursing is a tough job. My daughter's a nurse. She's worked in ER. She's worked in COVID. She's worked in hospice care. She's a great nurse. It is demanding, though. It takes it out of you, and 
for some people, you know, it takes it out of you more than others, I guess. We, we, we really want to encourage uh, good nurses as well as just any nurses. But, I mean, we'll take any probably at this point. But it, it is a tough job. Yeah, it, uh, it is a really tough job. It's very, there's a lot of demands on your time. There's a lot of uh, critical decisions that you need to make as a nurse, a lot. Um, and it's, it's not just the physical demands, it's an emotionally demanding job as well. And that's really been um, brought to light during the pandemic when na- now families and essential caregivers are allowed back into healthcare settings, but for a long time they weren't. And the healthcare workers or the nurses, the PSWs, that's who who played the role of emotional support and family for yeah. people who needed healthcare. And it, it is a really difficult job. It's a, there's a lot of risk associated with nursing uh, because you're in, you're responsible for a lot of uh, a lot of patients, a lot of residents, and when workloads are kind of increased. When you're responsible for more and more, it's a lot easier to make mistakes or to miss things because you didn't have time to get to them. When I said about how we want good nurses, and I mean that, we want that in every profession, but the NDP appear unlikely to win this election based on polls. That said, uh, they have been campaigning on a pledge to hire 30,000 new nurses. I think that's the broadest pledge of any of the parties right now. But here's the challenge. Even if they miraculously came back and won this election, where would we find 30,000 new nurses? Uh, so it would take to become an RN. It, if you're coming uh, without previous university education or without already having an RPN diploma, it takes four years to become an RN. Um, so we're, it's not an immediate solution to just train new people. There is some promising work being done around the internationally educated nurses. So nurses who had their education completed in other countries who are now living in Ontario and wanting to work as nurses in Ontario, um, be hopefully being able to expedite those applications through the College of Nurses and to be able to get work permits for those individuals. Um, there's, I mean, we should be looking at bridging programs and looking at bridging uh, PSWs to RPNs and RPNs to RNs, but it all takes people who want to work in healthcare and who want to do this work. Um, And it is very rewarding work. Like I'm a nurse. I love being a nurse, but it's not for everybody. And I think that that's something that we need to remember as we're increasing our workforce is that we can't just, uh, we can't just pluck anybody off the street and say, Hey, you're going to become a nurse. It no. has to be something they want to do. Let me say this to you, uh, and I thank you for you do, for doing this because uh, over the years, when my daughter has sat down at dinner with us and told us, you know, some things that she had to do at work that day, I look at her and I go, "Thank goodness you're doing that," because there's no way in the world I could ever I could ever do that. So I am thrilled that those of you who are out there who are willing and able and have the capacity emotionally and every other way to do it are are doing it because it is um, it is a tough job. Uh, Morgan Hofarth, president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tomorrow morning, Saturday morning, bright and early, my next guest is going to be hopping on her bicycle and beginning to ride up the Sydenham Hill in Dundas. Not once, not five times, not 10 times, 86 times, 86 times to raise awareness and money 
for a charity that is near and dear to her heart. Her name is Patricia Peterson. She joins me now. Patricia, how are you this morning? Good morning. I'm great. And you? Uh, well, I, I'm better than you're going to be. 86 <laughs> times is a lot of time. That's a brutal hill, and you're going to do it 86 times. Yes. At least so I will attempt to do it 86 times. All right. It, it, before we get into how rough that's going to be, just for background so people know that it's not just because you fell and were concussed or something and something's gone wrong. You're doing this for a very good reason. What is the reason you're doing this? I'm doing it because a friend of mine, teammate, has been battling cancer for now just over six years, uh, more specifically pancreatic cancer. And as a lot of people might know, pancreatic cancer is not a great survival rate. Um, so we were planning on doing a triathlon, long distance triathlon in August, upcoming August. And due to some health issues that she's been battling, we had to uh, back out of it. So in their honor, I'll, I decided to do this for her and just go up the hill and try and bring some awareness toward the uh, disease because it's such a rough one. It is. It is. And this is, so if people are wondering, okay, why 86 times? That's a very unusual out there number. You are trying to Everest Sydenham Hill, which basically means your cumulative distance and elevation will match riding up Mount Everest. Yes, it is. Yes. So I'll just, the total of Everest is, um, for Sydenham is just going up 86 time. I'll be rounding it up to 90 just so I can, my, my mind can be set up for it. So doing sets of 10 and taking a break within the sets of 10. This, um, I don't need to tell you how difficult this is going to be. This is, a, I mean, this is an, an unbelievable thing to try and do because anyone who's r ridden their bicycle, rode their bicycle up that hill one time knows that the legs are burning and the lungs are burning. It, it, you're setting yourself up for a lot of work here. I am. I am. Um, I've done a couple um, sets of 10 in the past couple weeks. I know it won't be easy, but there's so much support coming um, to cheer me and to actually come up um, and do a couple uh, uphill with me. There's actually a friend that will try and come. She said she's never ridden up Sinhab. And I'm like, I can't believe it. Like I've known you for 10 <laughs> years and you've never been up that hill. It's such an amazing lookout as well, too. So it makes it a lot easier between the scenery, the people coming over, all the donations so far um, should make it a bit easier. And hopefully it'll turn out to be a fun day with tons of people coming out. And like I said, the more time I'm there, I feel like I'm going to create even more awareness toward the disease. Right. And for people, who, and again, not everyone knows you, obviously, but you to be fair you are not someone who just doesn't do anything athletically and have decided to do something this wild i mean you are an ironman triathlete you have done these incredible distance races before you you, you do on you do know you do believe that you have the tolerance and the physical capacity to do this i'm yeah i'm hoping i will like for me to do that is just to try and see how far my body can uh, bring me uh, or see how much strength I can have at the age I'm at. I started running 10 years ago um, just for, to try it out. And then I got a, my first medal <laughs> at 40 years old. So I'm like, oh, this is fun. 
and just picked it up, went a bit longer, did a couple marathon, then did a half Ironman. And um, it's just been going on for 10 years now. And it's great. Like the amount of people I have meet, um, the amount of fun that you get through that group of people is amazing. And just to try and maybe influence a couple of people here and there to try and do the same thing. So, and then with this Everest thing, it's another challenge. Like I've done a few Ironmans now. It's like, I need to find something that's a bit different. And to honor Lara is, I think, a big thing for me because I know that she's been having a rough patch in the past six months. So to do this, I'm hoping it'll bring a bit of energy for her um, battle. Sure, sure. Okay, so for people, so you're starting early tomorrow morning, going to go for, it could be 18 hours or thereabouts. If someone is driving by and they want to drive by just to support you, do you want them to honk when they drive by you or is that going to startle you every time someone honks? Um, probably the first few times might startle me, but I, I like I, hopefully with the amount of cyclists that might go up and down, hopefully people will actually slow down, honk or cheer as they go by. Hopefully uh, people are also a bit patient with the whole event going on. Right, um, right. The, the hill itself is pretty safe. Um, there's two lines going up and to go down, you have to slow to be slow. So I'm hoping, yeah, I'm hoping to get some cheers, some honks. Yeah, for sure. There you go. So if you're in the Dundas area tomorrow, pretty much any time during the day tomorrow, uh, look for Patricia Peterson. She will be the one riding up and down the hill again and again and again and again. Unbelievable <laughs> thing she's going to be doing. Uh, Patricia, good luck tomorrow. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much. And yeah, it'll be a fun day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. And my next guest has an awful lot on his mind these days. Um, his team is in the playoffs trying desperately to advance. We bring in Steve Steos, uh, president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. But of course, I'm not talking about the Bulldogs right now. He played for the Edmonton Oilers and played for the Calgary Flames. So, Steve, which one of those former teams is going to win the Battle of Alberta this year? Uh, by judging from that first game, I don't know. <laughs> I, I really don't know. I mean, it's. Uh, I think Edmonton being able to score six goals on Calgary with uh, how good they've played defensively throughout the season and, um, uh, and in the playoffs, I think, gives them some hope, as crazy as that sounds. But uh, certainly I think they have a lot of things to tidy up in, uh, on their own side of the puck. I, uh, I I do expect that uh, your attention, though, as president and GM of the Bulldogs, is a little more focused over this end of the country. Uh, I ex I expect I'd be shocked if it wasn't. Uh, you guys open round three of your playoffs, the OHL playoffs tonight against North Bay. This has been, uh, I don't know, this has been as good and unbelievable a run as I could ever imagine that any team could possibly be on. Have, have you ever seen anything like what your team has been doing? Uh, well, no, but uh, it's it's an incredibly focused group, and I think from the coaches and the players, it's uh, I th you know it's it's uh, you know it's flattering to hear you know our record and what we've been able to do, but really there's not a lot of talk about it. It's a focused group, and I hate to use it, but it is the old cliche. But these these boys just prepare for the day and get themselves ready, and so I think they're extremely excited about this opportunity against a. You know, a very good opponent in North Bay. I think this is something that we haven't seen in, in rounds one or two with uh, the amount of talent that North Bay has. So um, I, I feel conf confident uh, that the players are prepared and the coaching staff's got them ready to play. 
you know, and again, I know you don't want to, you know, spend too much time on the record and everything else, although it is unbelievable. But I do wonder when you do now face a team as good as North Bay, and you're right, you haven't had a team to play in the playoffs yet as good as them. You've won 18 straight. You've won 43 out of 47. And the only reason I bring those numbers up again is because do you ever wonder if they were to lose a game, which, you know, inevitably probably will happen at some point, how they'll react because it's been so long since they've been in that position? I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we've faced enough adversity internally. I think these players have gone through a lot, even going back to, uh, you know, uh, missing the season through to COVID. And then, you know, the ups and, ups and downs from an injury perspective early on this season. And, uh, you know, we hadn't had a full lineup for the longest time. So I think there's some internal, uh, you know, questions. But, you know, I guess it remains to be seen as far as what you're talking about. It. And uh, But, again, I think the resolve of this group, the leadership, uh, the commitment, you know, the real hunger just to con- compete and play games, I, uh, I, I'm anticipating that if, if and when that does happen, that we'll be prepared for the next day. I must say that, I mean, there are a lot of moves that you made this year as general manager that have worked. Every move pretty much has worked. The one that has stood out to me, and you may or may not agree with this one, but the one that stands out to me as the guy who has really solidified everything on this team is a Hamilton guy you brought in, Arbor Jack guy, who big defenseman who you brought in from from the Kitchener Rangers. And it was kind of underplayed at the time because it was around the time you brought in Mason McTavish, who's, you know, one of the stars of this league. What do you, when you look at Arbor, you were a defenseman, when you look at him, how much of an impact do you see him having on the game? Well, as far as going back to the trade deadline, Scott, what I identified as the most impactful player that may be available was Arbor, uh, without a doubt. And a player that, um, you know, I made some soft inquiries about earlier on. I wish I would have been a little more aggressive and gotten him earlier. But nevertheless, it's uh, he was to the point where I think you see what the value of return is for top-end players like the Mason McTavishes or the Robert Thomases. Um, I think, you know, it's easy to say now, but I think I was willing to go down that path with uh, with Arbor, even though he's an overage player. I mean, so he identified again as the player that was possibly available that I, w- I, I had pursued the hardest, earliest. And then, I mean, with McTavish, there still was some doubt that Peterborough was going to move him. But the impact that Arbor has is just he's he's got gr- very good skill for such a big strong shutdown type of defenseman i think he's just very versatile can play in all situations on the ice and qu- quite imposing figure and highly competitive yes. as people have seen yes i was talking to someone in the league yesterday and their phrase was that he scares the crap out of the other guys <laughs> which, which is probably pretty true yeah he's obviously an imposing figure and i think he's learned how to uh, use that the right way. I think he he understands that because he's such a big and you know imposing figure and can skate so hard, that, uh, skate so fast that I think he's you know being cautious, not cautious, but being mindful of the contact and how he uses his uh, uh, you know his physicality. I think he's done a great job in showing restraint for a very you know uh, obviously a very competitive player. That is Steve Steos. His team, the Hamilton Bulldogs, start round three of the playoffs tonight, 7 o'clock at First Ontario Centre. You can, I'm sure there are tickets available, and uh, it is, uh, it's been a perfect run so far. We'll see how this goes. Steve, appreciate it, and good luck this week, and on from here.
Thanks, Scott. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.